0: Love Talk Radio.
1: Sylvia, and you're listening to SylviaGlobalRadio.com. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm extremely excited because our special guest is Guy Kawasaki. Uh, most people um, in the technology industry especially, um, associate Guy with um, being the software evangelist for Apple and Microsoft. Um, an incredibly talented um, man who's written more than 10 successful books, and we are standing by patiently for him to call back in from a landline so that we have a clear connection. Um, in the meantime, I'm going to take one call. And engage one of our listeners as we prepare for Guy to come back on the broadcast and talk about his new book, Enchantment. And he'll he's going to be here so shortly. Also joining us today will be Rosalind O'Neill. Rosalind, I know that you're here on the line. How are you today, Rosalind? I am fine, thank you. Thank you so much for being here. We're waiting for Guy to call to call back in um, from a with a clear connection. So um talk to in the meantime let's talk about the work that you're doing and then I'll tie the two together with um Guy's book enchantment.
0: Yes, thank you. I am um I have a new organization that I just developed a consulting firm and it's called Leading from the Heart. And the the um the reason that I came to that name is because as I have spending the last 30 years with organizations working across diversity and inclusion, one of the things that has dawned on me is that really great leaders lead from the heart and not from the head. And so it's all about how do you engage the heart of leaders so that they really can create um, diverse and inclusive environments.
1: You know that's um, going to be a very valuable um, part of this conversation because Guy's book is enchantment, the art of changing hearts, minds, and actions. In the work that you do, how do you approach the changing pro- the change process?
0: Well, I'm, what I've said to people is when you think about pretty much any any um, process, it requires six to seven specific steps. Um, One is you've got to be clear about what it is you want to achieve. Two, your behaviors have to match up to your words. And that's a very important one, especially for leaders in terms of um, how they change people. They change people when their words match their actions. You've got to get people around you to help with support and guidance. You've got to learn everything you can. You have to set up metrics and measurements that matter so that we only measure those things that matter. We don't measure those things that are necessarily simple and easy, but, in fact, don't lead us to where we want to go. You've got to engage everyone. Um, I was listening to a a thing that Guy was doing talking about Steve Jobs, and one of the things about Apple Computer is that – It was really about engaging everyone, engaging consumers and customers and employees and stockholders. You've got to engage everyone. And you have to understand process. So if you do those seven things, I really believe that you can change um, an entire culture of an organization. So when I talk about change, I'm talking about large um, system-wide cultural change. And it happens from doing those seven things, guy is back
1: on the on the air, Rosalind. I'm gonna have you stand by go back to the introduction with Guy and engage him in the conversation and give him an opportunity to talk about um you know his perspective on enchantment and the art of changing hearts, minds, and actions. Stand by, Rosalind, okay, yes, guy. Yes, hi. Hi. Thanks so much for joining us today. We're, we have callers um, already phoning in and other listeners um, on board ready for a very robust conversation with you. And Great. who you, you just heard was um, Roslyn O'Neill. And... We'll bring her back into the conversation shortly. Um, Guy, talk to, you know, Sylvia Global's format is especially geared toward women and women who are in business, um, women at um, very various levels globally. But, you know, I think that the book Enchantment, in this word enchant, Enchantment, um, in the art of changing hearts, minds, and actions, and to be able to do it without manipulating people is a conversation that will be very valuable to women in all areas of leadership. So talk to us about why you wrote the book and, um, the, you know, some of the, the lessons to be learned in there. I know there are nine principles that you convey.
2: Yeah. Well, geez, that's quite an introduction. Uh the the crux of enchantment is to build on a base of three things: a uh, likability, trustworthiness, and a great product. And if you have those three, uh, then you can move on to the higher level skills. Uh, but those three are kind of necessary, and I would almost make the case sufficient to enchant people. If you get those three down, you know the rest uh, is cream. So likability. Uh, comes across because of a great smile, because of a good handshake, some real basics. Uh, trustworthiness is about uh, looking out for the other person, uh, being transparent, uh, You know, be- becoming someone who doesn't believe it's a zero-sum game, so I have to eat the pie before you do, because if you eat the pie before I do, I get less pie. Uh, trustworthy people are more bakers than eaters, bakers believing that they can build uh, and bake bigger pies. And finally, uh, quality, I I define quality with an acronym, DICE, D-I-C-E-E, which stands for deep, as in lots of features, intelligent. When you look at it, you understand that the company understood your pain. Uh, Complete is C, uh, that is, it's not just the software, it's the totality of the experience, the APIs, the documentation, the website, all that stuff, Uh, developers, VARs, conferences. Uh, The first E stands for empowering, great, uh, enchanting products and services, make you feel empowered. Uh, They don't frustrate you. They don't fight you. They make you better. And the last E is elegance. uh, Great products and services have a beautiful user interface. So uh, now nobody has to read the book because I just gave you the basics.
1: (laughs) You know – what what is it that prompted you to write this book? I mean, you've had um, is this book number eleven? Of the, this is book know, number
2: eleven.
1: Yeah, you've had ten six very successful books that um, bring a wide range of you know of information and resources. on um, why this book on enchantment? Did you see something a need for this in particular?
2: Uh, you know, at some level, when you ask an author why did you write a book, the honest answer is uh, royalty. Uh, but I don't think that's the question you're asking. <laughs> Asking. Uh, there's a higher level answer than that, luckily. And the higher level answer is that I have had a career, as I look back, of having to enchant people, to get them to use a Macintosh, to get them to develop software for a Macintosh. Uh, as a CEO, uh, you have to enchant people to fund you, you have to enchant people to quit their other job and join you in a shaky startup, and you have to enchant customers to take a chance with a new company, with a new product or service. And I became a fan of Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, and I decided that I wanted to write a book in that genre. That I had some advantages, though. I mean, Dale Carnegie could fill a ballroom. Um, I can... Uh, right for people who have hundreds of thousands of followers, so it's kind of an advantage uh, compared to Dale Carnegie's uh, subjects who only could fill ballrooms at the time in the 1930s. So uh, that's what I want to do. You know, some, and at the end of my life, I'd like to be able to say, "Well, I, I wrote this book called Enchantment, and it helped people uh, change the world." You know, I see this approach of
1: enchantment um, kind of the equivalent. I'm a hockey mom. You and-
2: are yeah I'm a absolutely. hockey player i love I, hockey
1: that's the reason i'm bringing it up is because <laughs> you understand um the difference between a finesse player and just a street player you know there's yeah. and the word enchantment in this when i um was as i was reading your book i found this to be really one of the core principles associated um whether it's on or off the ice with finesse you know that yeah. word finesse and being able to maneuver um In, you know, a game, the game of life or the arena of business or on the ice in a way that um, doesn't mean, you know, what you, you know, you just, just, doesn't mean that, you know, winner takes all and you do it Uh at the expense of beating everybody else down. You know, there's still a degree of finesse associated (laughs) with the word enchantment in my mind.
2: There is an absolute level of finesse. Uh, having said that, let me clarify something for you. I am not a finesse hockey player. Okay? <laughs> just, just FYI, because <laughs> if anybody's listening to this who's played hockey with me, they know what I'm talking about.
1: No okay. um, so when you are. But, what position do you play?
2: Uh, I, I play whatever position least hurts the team I'm on. So usually that's a left wing or something like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. So, so um, yeah. Go ahead. No, you. I, I'm done. <laughs>
1: So how how does how does enchantment work with adding making meaning? You know, how do you because I one of the things that I picked up from you is you know, to increase the quality of our life, you know, we have to create something meaningful and being able to change other people's hearts and minds, there's something meaningful in that process when it's done from this approach of being enchanting?
2: Well, uh, meaning goes back to one of the pillars of enchantment, i.e. quality. Uh, Typically, something that makes meaning is high quality. So it's, I think, easy to enchant uh, people uh, because Macintosh makes meaning because Macintosh makes you more creative and productive. So Macintosh is an enchanting computer. So that's that's the connection between meaning and enchantment. Um, I have enchi- tried to enchant people with crap, and I have tried to enchant people with great stuff. And let me tell you, it is a lot easier to enchant people with great stuff.
1: You know, I once heard you um, explain that you are periodically affected by a ringing in your ear. Yes. That despite the medical um, research and attempts to identify the cause of it, perhaps it it leads back to having to listen to all those pitch, you know, with your, um, you know, <laughs> your venture capital business and people not being able to enchant you. So when you're on the the side of the table where you need to be enchanted, in yeah. order participate what is it that you're also looking and listening to to avoid that ringing
2: in your ear? (laughs) well in in a perfect world you know a typical pitch would be uh, much shorter in the first 30 seconds they would explain what they do uh it it in most pitches take at least an hour in the first 15 minutes, they're talking about their background and the market size, neither of which you know, truly we care about uh, because it should be obvious <laughs> what the market size is. I mean, if, if you have to prove that a market is big, something's wrong already. So uh, I, I think you know, I have a PowerPoint rule called the 10-20-30 rule. So I think the optimal number of slides in a PowerPoint presentation is 10. You should be able to give it in 20 minutes, and the smallest font should be 30 points.
1: Okay. Uh, what about time frame for you know? Are you looking at all of that happening within five minutes or less, or fifteen minutes or less? When the pitch, when you're being enchanted.
2: I'm looking for thirty seconds or 30 less. Seconds. <laughs> thirty seconds. Thirty uh,
1: seconds. You know, how do do you find that women are more successful at being able to enchant you when in your venture capital role, or men are more effective at that? It's very general statement. Well, say question. that again. Uh, ask that question. When again. you're, yeah, are women? What is the skill set? I'll reword it. What is the skill set that women have to their advantage in being enchanting in order to change hearts and minds in this arena of business?
2: Um, no, I have to say that I may not be. I may not have a common or widely accepted attitude. But I don't really care about the gender, um, and that's actually a positive for women. Uh, I think a lot of venture capitalists, you know, only see men as CEOs because I don't know why. Because know, men are more macho, men don't get pregnant, you know, whatever. I don't know. Ask a conservative. Ask ask Carl Rove. He'll explain it to you, uh, or John Sununu. I just don't care. All I care about is, you know, who who this person is across the table. Or Actually, I don't even care about that. What I really care about is what is the idea of the person across the table. And either I get the idea or not. And I don't care if that person is male, female, straight, bi, gay, trans, you know, in a wheelchair or not. It's just can that person make a great product or service. But you have
1: said, Guy, you know, on occasion that, you know, Great business models come from women, you know, that men have a fundamental genet- genetic genetic oh, flaw. Oh.
2: Yes, yes, yes. So regarding that, um, what I'm saying there is that men have have to overcome something, which I believe that men are predisposed to want to kill things. So they want to kill animals. They want to kill plants. They want to kill other humans. You know, they like to kill stuff. And to a large degree, that desire has been suppressed, except in the realm of entrepreneurship, where you know people still think it's fashionable to want to kill your competition. Um, the problem with that theory is that very few customers buy a product or service because they want you they want to support your efforts to kill your competition. People buy your product or service because your product or service brings them joy or makes them more creative or makes them cooler or something. But, you know, I don't think people wake up in the morning saying, now, how can I hurt Microsoft? Oh, I'll go buy Macintosh. I don't, I don't think they wake up in the morning saying, how can I hurt Google? Oh, I'll start using Bing. Um, that's not why people use a product or service, and men can't get that through their thick skull because all they want to do is kill stuff. And the difference
1: for the the difference for women?
2: Uh, I think women are nurturing, and they don't you know they don't look at the world as a, what can we kill. Um, <laughs> what can I say?
1: No, you have daughters, so yes. um you know this is. I think this is a real important conversation piece of the conversation that we don't often get to have. And I that is the specific reason why I was asking you when you're listening to a pitch from a woman, do you see these characteristics reflected in how a woman presents um her business plan to you and her business, you know, proposals?
2: Um I, I will tell you that generally speaking, no matter what gender you are most entrepreneurs' pitches suck <laughs> yes yeah. Yeah. they're, you know, they're like, instead of 10, 20, 30, they're like 60, 98, which is 60 slides, 90 minutes, 8-point font. And that is true no matter whether you're male or female.
1: Why the overkill? What do you attribute that to?
2: Uh, I think the overkill in number of slides.
1: Yes, in the...
2: I think it's basically because people think that more is more. Um so, you know, if if you can't convince somebody, you just keep pouring it on um until you just wear down. It's it's maybe it's a US phenomenon. Maybe it's based on this, you know, concept of shock and awe and that um if you're going to if you're going to go to war, You know, you you want to, like, devastate the place and and just bomb the hell out of it, bomb it back to the ice age, you know, whatever. So the more weapons, the more more bombs, the more airplanes, the more everything you bring to the party, uh, the more powerful you are, the more successful you are. Um, As we've seen, uh, shock and awe is not necessarily a winning strategy. Um, Surgical strike might be better. And so I, I think that well, a very good metaphor to keep in mind when you pitch is uh, online dating. So, in online dating, there are two kinds of websites. Uh, at at a, the extreme, personified by two, one is uh, eHarmony. E- so, at eHarmony, you fill out all kinds of questions because you're building a psychographic to find your, you know, life-long mate or soulmate, right? The opposite. Of e-harmony is hot or not And hot or not there's a picture and you decide is that woman is that man hot or not it's you know it takes two seconds well venture capital is hot or not people decide in 30 seconds and so you know they're not going to try to build this psychographic understanding of you and kumbaya hand-holding um, becoming your best friend and soulmate you're either a hot product or you're not
1: Okay. <laughs> I'm anxious to get our callers engaged in the conversation with you. Um, I'm going to take um, Kathleen first and then go back and then bring Rosalind into the conversation and then go from there. Um, I know that I'm anticipating a part of Kathleen's question is around technology and You promote um, in your book, Enchantment, the use of technology to enchant, the push-pull technology. Can you address that before I bring Kat on?
2: The push-pull part of of social media? Uh, Well, I think, if I got the question right, that there are different kinds of ways to reach people. And uh, there is pull, which... I don't particularly like. A uh, pull is something like a website where you have to pull people back to your website. They they have to sort of voluntarily come to your website because it's so compelling that they're just attracted to it and pulled back. Push is more like Twitter and Google Plus and Pinterest and Facebook and LinkedIn where you're pushing out notification, you're pushing out links, you're pushing out stories. It arrives in or or even an email a subscription list. So People are sitting there and stuff comes to them as opposed to they have to go to some place to get it. And uh, I am more in the push camp than the pull camp.
1: Okay. Kathleen, are you – thank you, Guy. Kathleen, are you there?
0: Hello, Kath? Hi there. How are Hi. you guys? Good afternoon. Hi. Hi. Go ahead. You're on the air. Fantastic. I'm I'm really happy to be on air. And I, my question is simple and pretty straightforward when it comes to engagement and reintroducing yourself. Do you have any tips for when you're in the social media sphere? You may be interacting with people who you have met in person, but now you're doing the push online and reintroducing
2: yourself that way? Well, I think that the key to something like that is the understanding that social media success requires that you provide value. And I don't think a lot of people understand that. They think that social media success is about updates such as my cat rolled over, the line at Starbucks is long. Um you know, Mitt Romney is about to give his concession speech. I mean, that's news in a sense. But truly, if you want to add value, you provide information like what just happened or you provide analysis. What does it mean that this just happened? Or you provide assistance, how to make this good thing happen for you or how to avoid a bad thing. So I think the right framework in social media is to always be thinking, what value am I adding to people?
0: I understand, and that principle is going to be key regardless of what, where you are in your relationship with the yes. people you're engaging. Yes. Understood. Thank you.
2: You're welcome.
1: Thank you, Thank you Kathleen. Roslyn. Roslyn. Yes. Hi. Thank you for joining us today. You're on the air with Guy Kawasaki.
0: Hi. Thank you. Hello, Guy. Hi. I was... um. I am a consultant who does work around helping leaders to get in touch with what I refer to as leading from the heart. And so uh-huh. when I saw your your book title I was um I was in fact enchanted by it um having in the in the diversity and inclusion world we talk about the head the hands and the heart. Mm-hmm. Um and you talk about the heart the minds and the actions which are the same things and um I believe that that the reason that we put the word heart first is because it is really crucial. I was, I was struck when I was listening to your the three things that, that it takes, likability, trustworthiness, and great product. And, and what really struck me was that um, the trustworthiness and the likability, I believe, allow you to gather the kind of talent that gives you a great product. Um, would you agree or do you think that in fact you can get a great product um when you have a leader who does not enchant, who is not likable and not trustworthy? <laughs> are
2: you are you specifically referring to a former CEO of Apple? <laughs>
0: I'm not I mentioned no name. <laughs> well, Listen, I'm l- no names. <laughs> okay.
2: Well, let's just put it this way that I think those three pillars are necessary. Not every company has everything in equal quantities. So let's take an example. <laughs> let's, let's take a random example. How about yeah. Apple? All right, okay. so <laughs> with Apple um, – Let's start with the easy one. So quality. No question Apple has great quality. Well, at least yes. no question until the iPad mini um and yes. the Apple Maps. But you know, up to the last month or so, no question Apple had great quality. Check that box, right? Yes. So now you might ask the question, well, you know, was Steve Jobs really likable and trustworthy? Uh, you know, you might hear a lot of arguments either way on that. But my take on Apple is that, other than the the million or two million people who are sort of in the inner circle of technology who are you know always watching Steve and you know reading Mashable before they read the paper and and you know going to the Apple website once a day to check on updates, other than those one or two million people, most people's interaction with Apple is through the Apple stores right yeah, and so yes. when you go to the Apple store. I mean, I've had a lot of people who go to the Apple store don't even know who Steve Jobs is at this point, right? But you go to that store, and the store is well-lit, and it's clean, and there's not a lot of crap laying around, not a lot of boxes laying around. And, you know, you can take your iPhone app in there and pay stuff. They trust you. Clearly, you know, they're not strip-searching you on the way out because you paid with, you know. And and then you, you, you schedule an appointment with the Genius Bar, and lo and behold... When you go there, they're ready for you, and lo and behold, the freaking genius really solves your problem. What a concept! Yeah. And so, I think the likability and trustworthy of Apple comes from the Apple stores, and the the quality comes from the product, and so that's why okay. Apple is so successful.
0: I think that that's a um, a perfect example. In all the consulting, and I've consulted to um probably of the top 100, um, uh, Fortune 100 companies uh-huh. in the, that are U.S.-based. And I think that what is really true is the you may not have the CEO, if we just, for, for sake of this, the CEO as somebody who may or may not be likable. Um, I think, by the way, trustworthy they have to be. I believe that no matter what, um, leaders have to be trustworthy for well, people I- to follow them.
2: I think we found um, but out I that, think that it
0: really does say maybe in in different parts of the organization, you really do have people who are leading, who are the, who are enchanting, who can in fact uh, enchant the folks who work for them. And so I think that's a very important part that, that we say to leaders, I don't care where you are, you have the ability to do this you have the ability to lead from the heart you have the ability yep. to gather the hearts and the minds and the hands and the, the the hearts the minds and the actions of people so i think that's yep. i think that's perfect
2: great <laughs> i i you know i i think the um the republican party got a major lesson last night in enchantment and yes. trustworthiness i mean yes. you know i, I and listen yeah and absolutely yeah. yeah and uh yeah you know i yes. mean i don't, I don't know the where products
0: were, the products were not that different yeah and so that's what we tell leaders when i'm talking to leaders about cultural change i say to them in many ways you know you and your competitor i just finished working for Campbell's soup um so soup is soup okay and you know there's better and more, you know and but it, mm-hmm. and you know in the in the end soup is pretty much soup yeah the differentiation then is in the likability and the trustworthiness of it, the trustability of it, the fact that you don't think you're going to get poisoned, that you don't believe that, you know, there's metal in it. Absolutely. Yep.
1: Guy, how does a, a company rebound when they've experienced, um, you know, a moment where there's a public embarrassment and the trust might be temporarily um, eroded? How do they rebound from that?
2: Well, I mean, the simple answer is, don't do it in the first place, but I suppose it's too late, right, in this example. Example. Uh, I I think the answer is to fall on your sword. I mean, to basically admit it and uh, fix the problem and move on. I think what exacerbates most situations is the period of denial where you say it didn't happen, it didn't happen, it's not true, it's not true, it's not true, it's not true. true. Oh, it was true, sorry. Uh, You know, it just stretches it out. So why don't they just shut up and (laughs) bite the bullet?
1: Aren't these characteristics, though, that an individual learns in their formative years? Um, that then they carry as values in their leadership roles in business.
2: Uh, that I don't know. <laughs> that's that's beyond my pay grade.
0: <laughs> well, it, it's actually not beyond mine. Okay. Yeah, I, yeah I, I
1: think I think Guy, you actually know because you must be doing instilling these same types of virtues within your own children. You know, what do you think, um, Rosalind?
0: Well, I think that. Um, that yes and no. I think that yes, we do learn from our parents. We learn from our environment. We learn um, we learn things like trustworthiness. We we learn it by virtue of either seeing it um, or seeing the negative of it. And so we bring that into our work experience because we bring all of our experiences with us. We don't we don't leave experiences at home. We don't right. say well you know I right. leave these three experiences but I'm take these seven. So we bring all of them in with us. I also think that leaders can, in fact, learn to view the people who work for them differently. I think they can come out of the Harvard B. School with one way of being, and, in fact, I do believe that they can grow, change, evolve. Now, I'm not sure that they can be extraordinary leaders, but they can be really good ones.
2: Are you saying that – Harvard B School is a plus or a negative for a leader?
0: Uh, neither. I was just saying they come out of Harvard B School. <laughs> <laughs> come
2: on, tell us how you really feel.
0: No, see, no, no, I really meant that. I, you know, it's just it's like using the term Apple. You know, we're just talking about places. <laughs>
2: yeah, well. Well, what
0: do you, you guy?
1: You've expressed some, you know, I've seen, I've heard, and seen you give some presentations where a part of your advice is, you know. We have some wisdom within ourselves, um, but the models that we refer to aren't always the best models. And so trusting the model and not trusting our own wisdom. Um, and just to be clear, I've heard you make reference to, you know, not always trusting the person with the suit, the tie, and the MBA.
2: Uh to put it mildly.
1: Yeah, yeah. No,
2: no, really. Help, help us by
1: elaborating on that because I think that's a part of the conversation that needs to be had for this audience base. Is that sometimes, especially women, we think that we're never, you know, not all of us, but there are those of us who, you know, don't think we're quite good enough. You know, if we, if we could only be better at. um approaching something like a man, or if we have an MBA, then we'd get more attention, or if we have the PhD, we'd get more credibility. And there's um, something to be said for just the, the wisdom that gets us further along as well. Well, it, the,
2: the problem is that I may be, in, you know, not the norm. <laughs> I may be an unusual case who is sort of gender blind, sexual orientation blind, you know, whatever. So I I don't know if I should be giving advice like this because, like, what if a lot of people aren't like me? I could be giving you the absolute worst advice. Well,
1: I think Um, you're welcome to join in the conversation. The reason (laughs) that we have you as the featured guest is because I think that your, quote, unquote, abnormality is actually (laughs) more on point in terms of what needs to be brought to the forefront and will help to reshape some of our own thinking and the direction that we move in and thus equip us to be more effective as leaders and not be afraid to be abnormal in that way.
2: Yeah, well I I think that uh I I you know I'm just like so happy about yesterday's election. I think yes. that 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 just that just tells not only the world but it tells other Americans this is really a sort of new dawn. I mean, it is a new age, and uh, it's I just the world, it was really a big shift for me yesterday that a black man can win two terms, you know, despite uh, the efforts of lots of people with lots of money to to defeat him, um, and... Uh, I just see it as like a meritocracy, or, or you know, uh, I was. It was a great day for the world yesterday. Uh, I know I'm going to be losing listeners and losing followers um, for saying this, but you know, I'm 58 years old. I just let it rip at this point. I mean, what are you going to do? Not buy my book? <laughs> okay, so what? Uh, <laughs> so, I, 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 I. I Man, I just, like, I'm all for meritocracy, man. It, like, should not matter, all these things. Uh, it just should matter if you're good or not. You know, you you
1: shared um, that being good or not and not, always in not looking at things through the gender lens but you did post something which got a lot of positive attention and that was you know you played hockey and a black guy hugged you because <laughs> you were public about obama so that's like saying you're not going to look at the gender lens but then you post something embracing obama's message to daughters you know and what that reflects so there is there's nothing wrong with embracing this and that's the part of, so, so just get real with it guys, for sure you know
2: but it was very interesting so just you know, to To give more information to your listenership, so um uh, I just before this I played hockey uh and this this black guy, you know <laughs> who I kinda know, hugged me because I publicly endorsed Obama, and you know he he was like so moved that I would take a risk because you know well, I didn't see it as a risk but endorsing Obama or endorsing Romney, I mean, endorsing anybody publicly to take a stand is risky because at any given point, you know, 49% of the people might not agree with you, right? And so so I just posted that on Google Plus and Facebook and Twitter. It's kind of a funny story. That, you know, this black guy was so happy that I did this. And, and you know, and and now... <laughs> Now, something as funny and innocuous as that, at least in my opinion, is now generating this controversy. That you know, that's a racist remark, and why should it matter that he's black? You know, blah blah blah. I mean,
1: oh, I didn't, I wasn't aware of any controversy because I actually appreciated you you saying what you did.
2: Well, I mean, go read the one on Google Plus or Facebook where I did it, and like, you know. Uh, One thing I learned about social media is you just can't make everybody happy all the time. So how do
1: you handle it when you... I mean, I'm sure in business, too, there are points where we just learn that lesson. We just can't make everybody happy. How do you keep going?
2: Uh, Again, with the caveat that what I do may not be the right advice for everybody because I'm in a particular stage of life... I just don't give a crap anymore, so someone not in that stage may not want to take this advice, but I I basically tell people to stop reading my posts, I mean, you know, it's not like I forced you to subscribe to my feed, it's not as if I'm charging you to read my stuff and I now, you know, I should give you a guarantee, a money back refund, Um Social media is supposed to be what you want to express. And if I want to endorse Barack Obama, if I want to endorse, you know, Mitt Romney, that's my business, not your business. Uh, but I you know, I especially love, I especially love these things where I endorse Barack Obama and then people tell me you should not have any political posts in your timeline. You should only talk about technology and business. It's like, hello, whose timeline is this? And the the sort of irony of this is that these people tell me what not to post, um, but God forbid if I told them what not to post, right? Uh, so, it's a very, social media is a very strange world. It's, <laughs> It can definitely uh... <laughs> but the, the, the short answer to your question is I tell people to uncircle me unfollow me unfriend you know let's agree to disagree and get out of my face basically.
0: Ross <laughs> 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 what are your thoughts well I like that um, you know but part of it is because I'm 62 and I actually don't give a crap either um <laughs> <laughs> so I think one, well, I mean, you know, and I I turned down, I, um, I'm um i writing um a, a, a second book, and it's called The Power of Passion, Courage, and Faith. And it's really written for women. And one of the things that I say to them is, um, listen, listen to your own voice and just know that 10% of the people at the minimum are not going to like what you say. It doesn't no. matter what you say, they're not going to like it. No. Just get over it. You know, so I'm one of those people who says, you know, um, don't ever do work for anybody who you don't um, think is ethical. I say, you know, now, you know, there are probably places in my career where I did some work for people who didn't think were that ethical because I was broke. But I'm no longer broke and I'm no longer a child. And so I tell people, do what matters from your heart. Because for me, um as a consultant, if I don't lead from the heart, I can't show other leaders how to do that. And that's uh-huh. another piece of it for me.
2: Uh-huh. Yep. I agree.
1: Um, Guy, we have a question that's come in through the um through social media. <laughs>
2: <laughs> what a surprise. Um,
1: yeah, yeah. Um, asking how to lead employees, um, how to allow how to how to em- enchantment affects employees and how they...
2: I'm not sure. quite sure, yeah what their. are Okay, so uh, the key to enchanting an employee or employees, or the keys are threefold. Uh, first, uh, uh, inspired by the work of Daniel Pink, you not only have to pay people adequately, you have to provide what he calls, and I copied, a MAP. And MAP stands for An opportunity to master new skills while working autonomously towards a higher purpose. So you tell people, you come work for me. You will master new skills. You'll be working autonomously, and we work towards a higher purpose here, not simply making a buck. So we provide a map. So that's number one. Number two, you should empower people who work for you. If you want to enchant them, empower them. Tell them we trust you. We think you're going to make the right decision. You don't have to check with us for everything. When you want to take care of a customer, take care of the customer. This is the Nordstrom way. And the final way to enchant an employee is to be like Mike Rowe of dirty jobs, which is to suck it up. It means that you're willing to do the dirty job. You're willing to clean the you know dead rats out of the sewer. You go under the house and get the dead porcupines to to. We work in the paint factory, the poi factory, to perform artificial insemination on chickens and turkeys and llamas and pigs. You know, you do whatever is necessary. So if you did those three things, you would enchant people who work for you.
1: What were some of your own life experiences? This is another caller, um, another question, actually, that's come in from Oregon. Um, if you would share some of your own life experiences where you learned these lessons.
2: Well, the the, the biggest lesson... Was probably the Macintosh experience I had because that was you know pure enchantment. Uh, I was enchanted with the product, obviously, but I had to also enchant people and developers with the product and that 's where I truly learned about the quality uh, the product quality being so important prior to that. I was in the jewelry business in the jewelry manufacturing business, which is a very, very personal business, harder arguably than the computer business. And it's a small industry. Um, your reputation is everything. I work for a small um, jewelry manufacturer in Los Angeles, and it was all about trust. Uh, it's very easy to rip people off in the jewelry business because, you know, unless you assay everything, you really don't know if 18 karat gold is 18 karat gold, and. And, yeah, diamonds are subjective, too. So it's all about trust, and it's all about learning to sell, and I learned that in the jewelry business.
1: Thank you. Another question is if you would share some of your experiences growing up and how those um, characteristics are applied in your work today.
2: I, You know, I wish I could tell you that I had this great story about how I – grew up in poverty, and I raised myself from you with know, <laughs> the bootstraps, and I struggled, and I came up, you know, the first time I came into America, I saw the Statue of Liberty, and I said, this is where my future is. Uh, I love those kind of stories. That's not my story, unfortunately.
1: What's your uh, I was story?
2: born Yeah, I was born and raised in Hawaii. I lived uh, in one of the poorer parts of Hawaii, but, you know, I didn't know I was poor, <laughs> which is good. Uh, a lower middle class family. My father was a f- at at any point in his career, he was a fireman. He was a real estate broker, and he became a state senator, a politician. So, you know, it never at any point were we rich. Uh, although, like I said, I never believed we were poor. I never, you know, longed for anything I didn't get. Um, th- my parents made great sacrifices to send me to um, the best high school, I think, in Hawaii. Uh, It's not the high school that Barack Obama went to. Barack Obama went to Punahou.
1: Punahou, yeah.
2: Yeah, I went to Iolani. Um, Okay, yeah. So, so, you know, probably if he went to Iolani, he would have not had such a hard time in his second term. Um, (laughs) So anyway, that's a different story. And so, um, now, coming up, becoming, or being raised, or being Japanese American in Hawaii, uh, we were sort of you know the the majority the power structure, so it's not like I experienced blatant racism and you know had to had to uh, overcome my family being put in an internment camp during World War two, so I guess basically, I'm telling you I had a really good life, <laughs> you know, I wasn't abused as a child, or
1: you know yeah, I don't think the question <laughs> is necessarily being asked. Um, from the assumption that you had a, a rough life, but oh. just the curiosity of what your life experience um, may have been that has gotten you where you are today. Uh, you just shared it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> My roommate, by the way, had two um, when I was in college and went to Claremont yeah. Colleges. One was went to um same school as you, Iolani. And yeah. on the other on the other side of me went to Puenajos. So they're always at oh, it. Really? Yes, always <laughs> at it. We have a caller. I'm gonna take another call just a second. Hi, you're on the air. Thanks for calling in.
2: Oh thank you, Gail Sylvia. So I have a question for Guy. Um, you know, are you able to give any examples of when you may not want to be or you want to resist enchantment? I oh. saw. Information on that in your book, and I want to Oh yeah, that. there's a whole chapter on how to resist enchantment, uh, because yeah, I believe that you know, well, for enchantment to last a long time, it has to be mutually beneficial, which is it's good for the enchanter and the enchantee. But uh, you know, suffice it to say that. Not everybody who tries to enchant you has your best interests at heart, so I, I definitely list uh, a series of ways to resist enchantment, and I think that's very important. Um, like slowing your decision down and you know taking your time for this kind of thing; uh, those are very important things. The, the the key here, if you're the enchanter, is to you know, do like a real soul searching, and you know, is it good for the other person? Like when I sold Macintoshes to this day, I truly do believe that it's almost a moral responsibility for me to, pe- to, to get people to use a Macintosh because I think, I, well, i stronger than think, I believe that a Macintosh will make people's lives better. I believe that to the core of my existence. And um, that's what it takes to enchant people. Uh, That's what it takes to evangelize people, that you really, truly do believe that, which is very different than while I'm doing it for an affiliate fee. You know what I mean?
1: Okay, thank you. We have another um, question that's come in. Are there other areas of your life now that you're not um, the software evangelist for Apple that you're equally passionate about?
2: I love hockey. Uh, you know that. <laughs> I love to write, and I'm on my twelfth book now. It's going to be out in a month. And I love my children. Uh, so, you know, right now, I that that's those are my top three priorities. Wow, uh, put my wife you, in there. So I love my you, family. You your, yeah, your family. Yeah. yeah you you yeah.
1: once turned down a job. Um, and you you I heard you costed out like a two million dollar loss because well. of the decision $2 <laughs> two billion, two billion. Yeah, two billion, yeah. yeah. And you attribute the first billion being lost, you know, you just accepted that because you made being um with your family a priority. And the uh, can you talk to the audience about that experience and the lessons learned from that? Yeah,
2: well <laughs> so... This is about 15 years ago, and the person who funded Yahoo asked me if I wanted to interview for the position of CEO of Yahoo, and, you know, who knew what a Yahoo would become, right? I mean, now, Yahoo's kind of tarnished now, but it had its heyday, so this was before all that. So, at the time, my wife and I had one child, and uh, she was uh, in beta with our second child, and it, it, you know, we're living in San Francisco, and the company was down in the... Stanford area, so it would be an hour each way every day. And I looked at the site, and it was just a sort of collection of favorite websites. I, I didn't see the model, I didn't see the people, I didn't see the business, I didn't see anything. So I turned down the opportunity to interview for the CEO position of Yahoo. Now, this doesn't mean I necessarily would have gotten the job, but you know, I assume I would have gotten the job, and you know, roughly probably cost me two billion dollars. <laughs> I could have paid for one-third of Obama's campaign by myself. Are you
1: you involved in politics in any way?
2: You know, um, I was raised in a very political family. My father was a senator. I campaigned for him four or five times. I grew up campaigning for my father. Uh, I really have a sort of passionate distaste for politics because I saw how much time it took from my father and how much it took my father away from us. So I will never, ever be a politician. Never. And and uh, so I, I have sort of been apolitical for a very long time. Until this election, um, about oh, eight weeks ago, I just sort of snapped and, and came to the realization that uh, if certain people were elected, that it could mean you know, a fundamental change in America that, uh, you know, NPR might go away, PBS might go away, uh, my daughter's ability to determine what happens to her own body might go away, the Supreme Court might be completely changed, which is part of the reason why my 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 daughter's rights might go away. Um, and I just saw all these things, and, you know, I, I saw... A a group of people who got us into the Iraq War, they might come back into power and now get us into the Iranian War, uh, you know. And these are the same people who said there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, and now they're telling us there's weapons of mass destruction in Iran. You know, I'm seeing a pattern develop here, and so I just said, geez, you know, this is one time you may have to take a stand. So for the past eight weeks, I've just been blasting political posts. <laughs> up to Google Plus and Facebook and creating a lot of enemies.
1: So you had a celebration in your home too last night then? Uh, we had a celebration, yeah. I mean Yeah, we did. Know.
2: Yeah. We did. I, it, was, uh, it was
1: it was it was scary. It was very scary and you know there were uh, the Mick, Mick Romney that I saw giving the concession speech is the Mick Romney I would like to have seen throughout the campaign.
2: But isn't and, that the irony? Yeah. You know I mean in a sense if if he had showed that side yeah, Maybe he would have won because I I think that – what do I know about politics, right? But it seems to me that he had to make sure he was conservative enough for the conservatives but moderate enough for the moderates. But I think he spent more time showing he was conservative enough for the conservatives than he did moderate enough for the moderates. Or Or you could easily make the case you cannot be both. Right so either you're making Carl Rove happy or you're making moderates happy. You cannot make them both happy, which is you know the 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 great joke is a moderate, a conservative, a liberal uh walk into a bar, right? Yeah. And the bartender says, "Hi, Mitt. So What was he? What was he? Does he have binders full of women? Uh you know is there such a thing as legitimate rape did god intended oh. a rape to get a a baby i mean there are lots of things that just wow from a, it was a marketing disaster um, it was very scary and it also
1: <laughs> wasn't a a you know just an, an assumed win for obama's campaign either you know he really no had kidding. to really work it and i think it was more nerve-wracking um, this time around the first for at least for me personally, the first time around was it was so historical um and you know the moment of all of the unfolding of all of it, and then this time it was just, oh my gosh, you know this is really truly scary um uh, for us, and if we're not engaged in some way in raising our voice and standing up for what we believe in, um you know. Yeah. That we're, we're at risk of losing all the rights that we might believe and hold dear to us. You know, Guy, thank you so much for being here. I want to close out. There's still more callers, but we're <laughs> close to winding down. And you and I okay. went all we went across the board on this conversation, <laughs> from hockey to politics. I don't know what, it, but, um, what advice what, what would you like to leave with the listeners and close up the today's conversation and um, with some, you know, advice from you and your experience and perspective on life in general.
2: Well, I think the the key, uh, maybe one piece of advice I could give people is, never ask people to do something that you yourself would not do. Yeah. And if you went through life with that, assuming you're not a psychopath, <laughs> because a psychopath <laughs> might do things, right? But assuming you're not a psychopath, if you just ask yourself that, I mean, are you asking? your employees to do something that you wouldn't do? Uh, Are you asking your customers to do something that you wouldn't do? Are you asking your kids to do something that you wouldn't do? Uh, I think that is a very good test.
1: Guy Kawasaki, thank you so much for being with us here today on Sylvia Global. We, We love your work, and we love what you stand for, and we appreciate your time and availability today. Hope you'll come back and be a guest again. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, Rosalind, so much for being here with us, along with all the other callers. Uh, it was quite a pleasure. Rosalind, we we'll look forward to having you back again in more detail on the work that you're doing.
2: Thank you. Look forward to it. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Take
0: care. Bye-bye.